Well, good morning. Good this morning. is uh, truly an honor to be here. Uh, I, I am new to the Memphis area, uh, but not new to uh, the kind of work that uh, and the passion that sit that's sitting there in this room. Uh, it takes a special person to to be committed to others, no matter what their inmates or if they're a friend in need or whatever. It's hard to get somebody on the phone when you really need them. So much less an inmate So uh, in need. So anything, anybody that's in this workshop that does anything for folks in need, we certainly appreciate it. And I, I just want to personally thank you for your service. So today we want to talk about evidence-based programming and why it's so important in the correctional field. Um, you know, early in um, around 1978 to 80, uh, there was a gentleman named Matheson. He did a report on what works in corrections. And uh, he, it was a real comprehensive report. If you read the report, you would have gotten out of it what, uh, what he really wanted to uh, convey, but most of the people took this one-liner that he published, and it was, nothing works in corrections. A and at that time, we were putting a lot of money into treatment, we were putting a lot of money into different mental health processes, but we didn't research the correctional industry I'm talking about, didn't research, didn't really have anything to show for the money that was going into it. And, and so uh, a lot of legislators, uh, a lot of congressmen and folks in Washington started to look at that report and uh, it became a, a, a sounding board. And uh, long story short, it stripped a lot of the money out of the treatment processes for prisons and jails. And thus, by now, 2015, uh, during during that time in 78 to 80, we had about 650,000 folks in prison. Now we've got over 2.5 million people in prison. So here we are today, and uh, we're better. Uh, we've got more research, a lot, lot more research out. Uh, a lot of folks around the country are, are finding out what works and providing evidence-based information on things that work. And so we benefit as, a, as an industry from that, and we're able to, to kind of structure our programming uh, so that we, we, we hit the mark and we have effective change or we affect change within the individuals we serve. So I bring you greetings from uh, Mayor Mark Luttrell, who is uh, uh, mayor of this county, and uh, our Shelby County staff. With me today is Ms. Phyllis Fickling. She is over our Memphis and Shelby County Office of Reentry. It's called MISCOR. How many people have heard of MISCOR? Or Memphis Office of Shelby County? That's good, that's good. Uh, it's been around for about two years, uh, and we, were, we started out with a grant. We had some restraints from the grant, so we really couldn't flourish like we are now. Uh, we've moved three, this is the third time that we've moved. We moved Monday, so they're in the process of getting their stuff and moving and everybody getting acclimated to a new site. Uh, but the site is beautiful. It's in the heart of where it needs to be. It's on Mississippi and South Parkway, right in that area. But it's going to be it's going to be a shining light for that community. And, and hopefully God's help with God's help, 
not hopefully, but with God's help, it's going to make a difference, we believe, and then and Miss Phyllis's leadership. Also with me is Miss Patricia Melton, and she is instrumental in our facility in, in, in spending a lot of her time looking at evidence-based programming, making sure that we're doing the things that the research say we ought to do. And so I just want to introduce them. Ms. Melton will assist me in this, this presentation this morning. But as we say, what works? First of all, I think you have to have a good mission for, for your organization or your, your nonprofit or whatever you may be working with. You need to have a good, oh, oh, just yourself, what is your mission to, in, in working with uh, uh, convicted felons or, or, or returning citizens as we call them? And so we, our mission at, at Shelby County Division of Corrections is to operate safe and secure prisons. We got to do that, got to keep them behind the fence, got to make sure people are safe, got to make sure staff is safe. And we, but we want to provide effective programming. We got to provide that. If we don't, then we, we're really not needed. Well, we can just send them all to the Tennessee Department of Correction and, and then they can disperse them all across the state and uh, then when they finish their sentence, they can come on back to Shelby County. But if, if we don't do effective programming, that's really why we exist out there, is to provide an effective programming process. And we want to do that so we enhance community safety. We want to make a difference when folks come back to the community. And we want them to, to make a difference by making better choices uh, and having fewer victims and fewer costs associated with criminal justice. Well, what does that mission mean to us at Shelby County? It means that we ensure that the mission instills a sense of purpose in all our staff. Not just Ms. Melton, not just Ms. Wilson, not just Mr. Conifor, who work with reentry and work with programming, but with our officers, that they understand what their role is. It's not just to confine inmates. Their role is to be a motivational kind of officer, a person that can stand there, hold people accountable, treat people the way that they would like to be treated, and foster this sense of change, this sense of success, and this sense of hope, <clears throat> and not just to be there as a jailer, if you will, uh, as what we've been referred to. We are correctional officers, we believe, and we're co correctional professionals with a mission. And so every person at that facility understands that our goal is reentry. As simple as that. We are, our goal is reentry. The mission is a focal point when we make decisions, when we make financial decisions, when we look at office space, when we look at procedures, processes, we think about how does that affect reentry and how does that affect our programming piece. And we clearly communicate that division to mission to all staff. New staff coming in understand that this is not just a confinement place, that this is a place for uh, uh, change, a place for uh, reentry, a place for transition, a place for a cognitive process that has to take place. And that hopefully inspires all of us, including our volunteers that come in. We have over, I mean, Paula volunteers, but over 500 volunteers that come in and assist us every, every year. And we, we really appreciate that but we want to uh, inspire each other to higher levels of performance. So, I'm gonna turn it over to, to uh, Ms. Melton. She's gonna talk about our when, where, and how. So how do we do evidence-based programming? 
everybody talks about evidence. When does it start? Where does it start? And how do we get that, that mission accomplished? And I'm going to turn it over to her and uh, let her assist us. And it's going to take me a few minutes. You're going to have to. Good morning. As Director Gupton said, I'm Patricia Melton. I am the, the my official title is the Manager of Grants and Reentry Services. Clicker. One of the things that, well, the analogy that I usually use when I start talking about assessments and evidence-based programs, uh, what we do is a form of treatment, and it is no different from uh, what we do in a doctor's office. If you go to the doctor they don't just look at you and tell you what the problem is. You have to go through a battery of tests, which are assessments or evaluations. And the results of those things will allow the doctor to treat you based on whatever the problem is. We know what our problem is. So that's kind of the win of, I mean, that's, that's the why of what we do, because we have to make sure we're treating them based on whatever is being presented. Uh, when does it start? One of the things that Mr. Gupton has continuously said that Shelby County Division of Corrections is truly a reentry center. So if it's a reentry center, it has to begin as soon as they come in with the assessments and then the treatment follows that. One of the things that we've learned over time and not just at the Division of Corrections but just in general is about evidence-based programming. We can do a lot of things in a lot of different ways but unless we understand while we're doing it and we're doing it on the, on the right population, we're kind of at a loss. That's the beauty of evidence-based program. Any type of evidence-based programming that we have, it's been tested on the population that it's supposed to serve. So if it's tested on that population and they've got the right data to say that it works, then the only thing you can do is to make sure that you're using it the way it's been prescribed, just like you get your meds from the doctor, use it the way it's prescribed, and then you'll get the end results that you need. Uh, you go around skipping your meds or taking shortcuts and those kinds of things. Same thing in a prison environment with what we do. We have to do it the way it's prescribed, no shortcuts. So with that being said, we start off with assessments and everything that we do has been learned through trial and error. Once upon a time, we were not doing all of this, but we got to the point with some of our grant funded programs that we learned that our recidivism rate is lower when we do these kinds of things. So we were using the evidence-based assessments, we were using uh, the evidence-based programming, and we got better results than what is termed as three hots in a cot. Most of you in the prison said, and you know, that's what they said they need to give them, three hots in a cot, let them go, but they kept coming back. But to, in order to ensure that they don't come back, we had to start that assessment and working from there. The LSCMI assessment, it's a level of service case management inventory, and it is the key of what we do. It's like the mother of the assessments because it will, and we'll show you some extensive stuff on that in just a little bit, but that's, that's our risk assessment. That assessment should be able to predict the high risk areas. It should be able to tell us what areas they need to, that we need to focus on. And in, a, and in order to do that, these are the things that we need to do. These are the types of programs that they need, and we move forward from there. Uh, the Texas Christian Drug Screen, uh, 
And that's exactly what it is. It's a self-report drug screen, and that allows us to know <coughs> where they are with, uh, with their drug screens. A criminal thinking scale that just simply tells us about their criminal thinking. It will measure cold-heartedness, and you know that's a good thing to know because you know there's some cognitive restructuring that needs to go along with that. Uh, one of the, the mental health screen, that's done for obvious reasons. Uh, we need to know if they're to be placed in our mental health environment or, on, or mental health services are needed. The medical screen, simply what it is. A lot of them come in and that's the only time they've ever really gotten any medical attention. So those screens are very important. The California Achievement Test, that allows us to know where they are educationally. At the Division of Corrections, our education level is like sixth grade, third month. So, you know, the assessment tells us how much work we have to do. Vocational screen, we've got a couple that we're using. Some are a little more extensive than others, but they tell us not necessarily what a person has done, but what they have the propensity to do. Uh, we have one that's called a SAGE assessment, and it will not only just tell you what they can do, it measures temperament. If you have someone who's an adrenaline rusher and they score high for computers, you know they will not succeed with that, simply because if they're an adrenaline rusher, they need something that's going to keep that adrenaline pumping or else they're going to get bored or not give you the best that you need from them. Uh, it measures creativity and believe it or not, someone scoring high on creativity can do well in lawn care. So you have to take those assessments, look at what it's telling you and you make decisions from there. Uh, domestic violence screen, that's one of the things that uh, Mr. Gupton and I have a whole lot of conversations about because less than 1% of our population, less than 1% is there on domestic violence charges. But 75% of the population report being involved in domestic disturbances. Now that's pretty alarming. Um, there's not a lot of data out there to talk about why it is. But what we've learned is that if we look at the other offenses that brought them to the facility and look at uh, the ones who are saying, who are scoring high on that domestic violence screen, then we can put two and two together and come up with the person most likely to be involved in that and treated from that perspective. Uh, and the PREA, the Prison Rape Elimination Act, um, about less than 4% of our population uh, we have data on that less than 4% of the people at the Division of Corrections have been involved in that. Uh, with PREA, we're looking at uh, inmate to inmate and staff to inmate, and it has to be reported. Just because you're in a subservient environment, that is no reason for you to be taken advantage of. And those are the assessments that we're using. Uh, the LSCMI assessment, uh, and I really would call that our Mama Jamma of assessments because it, it really teases out uh, everything that we needed to because it measures risk. And if you can predict a risk, you can put things in place because you know the triggers. And you can put things in place to kind of circumvent that. Is it fail-proof? Heck no. But it's a good risk assessment. Um, it's a case management tool because that tool will allow us to plan for post-release. We do what we need to pre-release, but it also helps us plan for post-release. Um, it also tells us what the inmate is thinking. We have a, 
something that's called motivational interviewing. You can't just sit up and ask a person a question and get an answer, but the motivational interviewing goes hand in hand with this and it allow, allows us to get information without asking a lot of closing questions. You ask them, do you smoke weed? Yeah. I mean, what do you know? You know that they smoke weed. You ask them, what kinds of things do you do that makes you want to smoke weed? And then you get a better feel for what they're, for what they're going to say. It's just not a cut and dry. Something called motivational interviewing helps us get to that. And it also helps with uh, public safety because the LSCMI can be administered at any time. In a perfect world, it's nice to do it when they first enter the facility. Put them in evidence-based programming and then two years down the road, look at it again to see what has changed. And it would be the same for the community. Look at it again after they've been released and they end up, say, Memphis and Shelby County Office of Reentry. And they've gotten other supports and those, those risk levels should continue to go down. And that's what we're in the process of putting in place now. These are the things that the LSCMI measures. We've got to talk about the criminal history. There ain't nothing we can do about it because the history is strictly a history. That, that, that's what it is. So we have to look at the criminal history. Um, it's kind of interesting that we've got strengths up there because what kind of strengths can you have with a criminal history? If you've only had one offense, that's a strength when you're looking at a population who may have had six, seven, eight offenses. So that would be a strength for criminal history. Um, the type of offense would be a strength. If you've just had one shoplifting versus burglary, you know, that's a strength. So we have to look at all of those things and the, and the assessment will do that for us. Education, employment, um, that's a biggie. You heard me say earlier that our average reading level is six point, six, sixth grade, third month. And with that being said, a lot of people don't have the education or the skill set to do what they need to do. Um, of course, the strength there would be that they've got a high school diploma. You can hope that's a strength. But how many of you have run across people with high school diplomas and uh, they're reading on a third or fourth grade level? So one of the things that we do based on what that education portion of the LSCMI tells us is that we, they just may need a Dell basic education. They've got a high school diploma, but they may need to know how to read an application. That's adult basic education. That's all about literacy. And I think that's one of the things that um, a lot of environments have fallen short of. You see that they have a high school diploma and you're cert you have certain levels of expect expectations. And I think everybody in here would probably know an educated fool or two. So just because you have the education doesn't necessarily mean that you have the skill set that you need to get done what needs to be done. And that's why the education piece is so important. The family marital, uh, that's a biggie. Relationships are very important to what we do. And if they have no familiar supports out there, what are they returning to? They're probably returning to the environments that they came from, and those environments are oftentimes uh, what got them there. A strength for something like that is that they've been married for four years, uh, lost a job, and maybe stole something just to, meet, to make ends meet within the family. We don't condone that, but you understand that, and that tells you something about the criminal thinking as well. Uh, the leisure recreation. 
and that is what we found to be such a deficit. Our guys and, and our females out there, their leisure and recreation is usually what they did to get there. You know, you get caught up with the crowd that you're running with, and a lot of times you, you're, the biggest part of your crime is your association and the people that you, that you run with. They don't have leisure activities. How many times have you seen on TV or heard where they're playing spades and it ends up in gunfire? You know, you just kind of, that's because of the associations and they don't have any real structured leisure activities to do anything with. One of the things that um, we're, we've been able to do at the Division of Corrections is to put together, and, and we're still in the baby stage of this, so it's still growing, um, a recreational program because if any of y'all exercise, you know you're about tired by the time you get through, right? And you ain't fit for crime, TV, eating, or anything else. So that's kind of how we're looking at things as well. Burn off some of that energy. And if you do that in a structured way, then that, that's a good thing. Uh, companions, that goes hand in hand with the leisure family and uh, with the leisure and family piece because it's who you run with. Birds of a feather flock together that kind of thing. Some of those things start to mean something once you get into a different environment and you know what you're working with because your companions, um, and, I'll, and I'll use Michael Jackson as an example, uh, not because he was not great musically, but sometimes we need people in our lives to tell us no. That's stupid. Don't do that. You need people in your life to tell you that. Most of the time, you don't want companions to tell you that. You want people in your life that are your, your yes people. You want them to support what you do, good or bad. Uh, this thing about being loyal, loyalty should rest on the merits of it being the right thing, not because I like you. And that's one of the things that our folks have such a problem with. So this assessment will tease that out. And we all know that's a biggie. Um, one of the things that I learned a few years ago working with a, uh, a LADAC, he was also a PhD, and we were doing some intensive A&D with the people who scored high on some of these scales. Again, grant funded, so you know we, we were able to do that. And uh, he said that he wanted in those groups not just the people who were substance abusers, but the people who were actually selling the drugs. And that was, um, had never thought about that before, but it makes all the sense in the world because something, everything, it's, it's kind of like which came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, so what came first, the drug or the drug dealer? Because they all right in there together, so it's of the same cloth. And in order for them to understand the impact of what they do, then you have to start with that population, you have to work with that population as well. Risk factors, the pro-criminal attitude. That's just how they think. That's how they justify what they do. Uh, they, they can justify stealing from someone rich versus I'm poor, so they got so much anyway. That, that's their thinking. That's, their, that's, the, that's the attitude, uh, the no remorse. They had so much more than I did. A strength in an area like that if there's a, a theft, they did the stealing simply because it was for survival of the family. Not because they were trying to justify it, but you have to look at all of the pieces of that. 
goes hand in hand with the antisocial patterns, just the things that keeps them from assimilating well into what we do and how we do. Um, you look at all of these things, and, and I, I know because I have my hands uh, directly on so much of that, I tend to wonder, I just see some people from, uh, <laughs> didn't know they were, hey Joe's, but anyway, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that I've thought about myself, I wonder how I would score. I ain't bold enough to have anyone do it on me, so, you know. But, but I, I think, you know, that, that's an exercise that I think we could all benefit from because a lot of times we think, you know, we're, the on, we're on the treating end, we're on the behavior end, we're the ones that tell them that what they do is wrong. And y'all know we all got our own levels of dysfunction, so I, I don't really want one done on me. I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I don't, okay? But these are the same things that we could measure on ourselves to come up with what we need to come up with to see j just a comparative thing, okay? These are the types of reports that we can tease out from something like the LSCMI. One of the things that I didn't mention, um, the LSCMI uh, takes anywhere from 45 minutes to an hour and a half to administer. The more you do them and the more comfortable you become with the tool, uh, the quicker it gets, not because you're cutting corners, but because you know, I mean, it's like anything else, you know, it, let's look at exercise. There, you start a new routine, it's supposed to be an hour, you take a break every five minutes. You know, a month down the road, hopefully your break <coughs> is just every 20 minutes, but you get through it a little quicker because of the training. So that's one of the reasons we found the, the time difference. There are, we have about, 30 people at the Division of Corrections who are trained to administer LSCMIs. And we also have two master trainers. And of the 30 that are trained, probably 20 to 25 were trained by those two master trainers. We got smart uh, some years before I got there. There were some people trained in LSCMI, but they didn't do anything with it. They just got trained. And, and you know, if you don't use some things, it becomes dormant. So this time around, about four years ago, we decided we needed our own master trainers because this is a tool that we're going to start looking at. So anytime we need to have someone trained because they're new to the facility or a new role that they may in, be in with the facility, we have master trainers there on the spot to do that. So that's been a real plus for us because once you pay to have them trained, they train. So you don't have to go back to that expense anymore. Um, but back to the reports. The reports will tease out a whole lot of information, just gives you a complete profile of the person that you're working with. You know who you're working with, you know what you need to do, and you begin at that point to pray that you got all the evidence-based curriculum there to give them what they need so that they do not return. The comparative reports will allow you to actually, as it says, just to compare things. You can look at offenses and compare different type of offenses with other offenses and see what the commonalities are uh, between the people. Because sometimes, well at least often, it, I think it's less about the offense and it's less about the person that you're working with based on what the assessments have told you. Uh, and the case management report. Case management should be seamless. What you do on the inside, because it's amazing the types of case management you can do on the inside. You know, you've got resource fairs uh, in the community that people go to. We have resource fairs at the facility that our, that our inmates go to. We have job fairs inside. So 
when it comes to the case management piece, and if you've done all of the assessments that you need to do, you know when to start focusing on some of those resources and what's going to be needed inside and when they become returning citizens. This is what the scoring looks like. Um, people who score very low, it's just not a whole lot going on with them. They're usually you, I, uh, just starting to tease out some of the data with that, but most of our people who are who have scored in the very low, they are the older people who were over 40, and that's their first offense. Uh, they've had a, been in committed relationships, they've had jobs. Uh, we even had one guy where the, the economy upturned is what caused him to do what he needed to do. He didn't justify it. His criminal thinking was just fine. You know, he knew why he had done it. Did that make it wrong? Of course it did. But this is what the scoring looks like. Our population, it's in that medium to high. Uh, we have about 10% that are in the very high. And this is for the Division of Corrections. This is what we look like at the Division of Corrections. Those are our folks. That's true data from the population that we serve. When we did that, right now, uh, the facility has around 22, 2,300 folks. And of that number, we have about 1,800 who, have, who actually have LSCMIs. When we did that, we were at about 1,100. But one of the things that I've learned just from what our data shows us, the numbers, once you get something like that, they, 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 they say pretty much like that. You don't have to move in any different direction to figure out what you got because it mirrors very well. After the assessment, when you go to the doctor and they tell you they do all the evaluations, they tell you everything that's wrong, you always have a care plan. And that's what our reentry path is. That reentry path will direct everybody working with that inmate of what they need. The assessments will say, well he needs anger management. Well he needs uh, job well everybody needs job readiness. So, you know, as 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 my boss has said, that's the course that tells you how not to cuss your boss out. And a lot of times they don't know that's inappropriate. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's a little, it's a little humorous, but sometimes they don't. He ain't gonna disrespect me like that. Sit down, you know. That's what you want to say. But but you need that job readiness. But that reentry path will outline all of that. So we will enroll them in our curriculum-based program, and we will uh, put them in some kind of vocational path. We will make sure that there are some recreational activities, and the ones who need the education, we do that. We fix them all up real good, and it is our practice now that everyone is trans or referred to the Memphis and Shelby County Office of Reentry, and that's the old adage: you can take them to take the horses to water, but you can't make them drink it. We've done what we felt that we needed to do on the inside to ensure that they get to the Office of Reentry, and the proof is always you can have a lot of compliance within a controlled environment you know, as well as non-compliance, but you look at the compliance within a controlled environment, the proof is what happens after you leave that controlled environment. And that's why the um, case management plan and the referral to the Office of Reentry helps us with that seamless piece. One of the things that um, a lot of the, uh, I, I work with a lot of data at the Division of Corrections as well. 
and I do try to do a lot of research just to kind of stay up on what's out there and what we needed to do and one of the things that became very evident to me about a year and a half ago uh, and, and it goes back to that Michael Jackson syndrome you know you're not associating yourself with the people that you need to associate with and that's when we learned that mentoring is a big key to what we're going to have to do a lot of times we they we've got some of our folks who burn so many bridges they, they don't have anybody they have nothing to I mean they ain't got nobody so we have to start looking at what's going to help them you can send somebody to a mentor once you leave but you have not developed that relationship. It has to start on the inside. So that's one of the components and, and with what I've been tasked with doing out there is to just look at where the holes are, where the gaps are, and best I can come up with ways to, 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 to fix things because our recidivism rate is not anything to be proud of. We have a fatherhood grant funded program called Project Most. The recidivism rate and uh, after that program has, we pretty much hung the shingle uh, April 2012. And between April 2012 and now, our recidivism rate is about 4%. That's incredible. Now, everybody doesn't have that three-year marker out there, but that gives us something to work with. People who did not complete the program, their recidivism rate is about 14%. So that means some of the evidence-based things that we were doing while they were in the facility, that still helped. And what we're trying to do is to pattern what we've done in grant-funded programs with the Division of Corrections because we know those numbers get the job done. Now we'll have a larger pool as opposed to just 200 a year, but if you can still see a drop in recidivism, you know, you, you, you've, uh, you, you've done well. One of the tasks that we've always had with grant-funded program is sustaining what we've done after the grant leaves, and we've been able to do that, hence all of the assessments. Those things started out grant-funded, and now they're operating without grant-funded because the assessments are happening now in our intake area when they first get there. Between 14 to 21 days, it just depends on the type of assessment. So that's why reentry begins upon entry. This is a listing of some of our evidence-based curriculum. Um, adult basic education is, as I've explained it, uh, anger management, uh, batteries intervention, cognitive restructuring. And you can give them all of the skills that they need, but unless you work with how they think, you've got to restructure that thinking. And that's what cognitive restructuring does. You have to start there. And if you can't get a handle on how they think based on that antisocial, that pro-social, that cold-heartedness, and some of those other things that I've mentioned, you, you, you're not teaching them how not to cuss their bosses out because that's a part of that cognitive, uh, cognitive restructuring. You have to let them know what is, what is, and what's right, and what's not. Uh, domestic violence, job readiness, and financial literacy. Uh, we had a guy cleaning our building, one of the inmates out there, 36, uh, had been in and out of jail for 13 years, had never paid taxes before in his life, which means he never had no real job. I mean, he had been surviving, he's 36, but he had not had a job. And, and we have to start with the soft skills. You, can't, you can give somebody a job, but if they're not prepared to keep the job, you, you, you've absolutely done nothing. Um, substance abuse, relapse prevention, victim's impact. 
One of the things that's not up there that we are working on, we have learned that with women, y'all know how we emote and stuff, uh, you can work with women on anger management all day, every day, and it's gonna like be like it didn't take, they can quote the stuff to you, but they still gonna do what they do. We realize that trauma-informed care is an avenue, well, a direction, not that we need to go in, but that we're going in. We have to offer something like that to, to women because th there are differences in how we do what we do. This is our vocational stuff. I won't uh, elaborate too much on that, but these are the possibilities of what our guys can do. One of the things that I do want to point out is our uh, interior and exterior work lines. That's community service and volunteerism, whether they know it or not, because they work for free, you know. So those are two of the things that we have to instill in them in addition to you need to pay. I mean, you get, need to get paid for what you do. Uh, they're there on our dime, so, you know, they, they need to give a little something back, right? Uh, and I, with that, I'll turn it over to uh, Mr. Gupton. Where you put it? Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Probably didn't catch anything, huh? Good. Thank you, Ms. Melton. Sure. You know, I'm going to tell you, you know, you, you can read the books about evidence-based programming <coughs> and uh, get a good guide to how to do that. I'm going to tell you what really is a core piece for me as, uh, as a servant, as a leader of Shelby County, is that you've got to have good, competent people uh, in those positions. You got to make good decisions of who you put in places in your organization uh, working with folks. Uh, and they need to know what they're doing and they need to know how to utilize these processes because if they don't, the processes are just the processes. They're, they're on the page and they don't, they don't flush out. So we've got Paula here, Paula Wilson, who's over our uh, volunteers. Paula, stand up so everybody can see you. If you would, she's our she's our over our volunteer uh, services, does a great job with that. Again, over 500 volunteers come in and out of our facility each each uh, and every year, and and Matt O'Connor, who is is working with our transition process, he works with inmates to get them ready to 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 leave our facility and to make sure that they've crossed T's and dotted I's as best we can. And so uh, I'm gonna show you a little data. Uh, here and the data is good data but again if you don't have good people and people with passion committed to the process to the mission then you're not going to get the kind of, of gains that you're looking for and we've got good people that's really why I wanted you to to see some of our staff here so what what works uh, Washington State has done probably the best job of evaluating programs and evidence-based programming to see what is really effective in correctional setting. Uh, it's called the WISP results, Washington Institute for Public Policy. I know I missed some of those, but that's basically what it is. And what they found out is a couple things. General and specific cognitive-based treatment programs, just doing cognitive-based restructuring, thinking for a change is one, uh, uh, pro-social uh, skills out of the change company is another. MRT, which was started here in Memphis by Dr. Uh, Ken Robinson and, uh, and, and uh, his folks, 
uh, is on the evidence-based registry. There is an evidence-based registry of programs on SAMHSA's website. And if you look on there, they'll show you those programs. We use all programs that have been tested on inmates and say that this will give you a certain gain or a certain decrease in recidivism. So cognitive-based programming we use is Thinking for Change and MRT. Those are the, some of the hallmarks out there in the field now. 8.2% reduction in recidivism if you have passionate people, competent people providing a service. Programs for domestic violence, they've researched nine programs around the country, not a lot out there. Uh, not a lot of gain that they say. Uh, me and Ms. Melton and I, we were working with that. Again, I don't think the assessment piece is flushing out what who really needs to be in those programs. Like I said, one percent of our folks are there on the domestic violence charge. A lot of them go to TDOC now. But 75 percent of our guys that we survey say they've had domestic problems. So we're going to get into that and we're going to work with domestic violence in a way to try to help this community and see what, what our gains will be in recidivism uh, for our individuals. Intermediate sanctions, intensive uh, supervision, surveillance only, intense probation, parole, no change. They, rep they, they looked at 24 intensive probation programs around the country, no change, no change in recidivism. Intensive probation programs would include substance abuse like we have at the Miss Corps. At Miss Corps, we have two TDOC correctional uh, two par parole officers who see the offenders when they come to the office and also they receive services such as housing, uh, employment readiness, employment uh, uh, help, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy if needed, substance abuse programming through our partnerships, mental health, medical, you name it. Uh, some of you guys in here could, may be involved in it. If not today, you will be, because we're going to be calling on you to be involved over there in some form or fashion. 21.9% reduction in recidivism when we combine intensive supervision. Got my eyes on you a little closer. We're going to drug test you a little closer. But we're going to be with you along the way. We're going to have somebody case manage you, managing you and giving you programming. 21%. That was 10 programs that uh, Washington State's meta-analysis looked at. Correctional industry programs in prison, minus 7%. We do correctional industry in, 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 in uh, prison. Uh, basic adult education programs, just learning to read. Just basic education, 7.8, uh, 5.1. Employment training, you see it. Vocational education, if you get a vocational certificate in electrical and forklift, that, that means that you're going to cut your chance about 12%. Uh, uh, huge. Therapeutic community for the mentally ill, substance abusers, 27% when we put them in that environment. Project most utilizes the therapeutic community model. That's why that recidivism is so low, I believe. And the, and the, and the research flushes it out. <laughs> work release, we do work release. We have uh, probably 100 guys out on work release getting paid. Guess what? They send... Since 2007, they have sent over $1.3 million home because we have a process. They, they're just going to get a check and keep it. They send $1.3 million home to families. They paid about another $1.3 million to the facility over those seven years uh, for, for uh, 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 room and board. 
and then they get to keep a, a, a segment of that. And that all started under uh, our administrator here. I want him to stand up, Mr. Stanley Lifford. Uh, if you would stand up, he's our administrator over all of our program services in our facility. And uh, uh, started that uh, work release program. Uh, and and uh, it is really a, a carrot for individuals who've done their programming and are ready to go out, get, get a little money in their pocket before they leave. So what does all that mean? That means that, you know, someday they, they might be able to go there. That is truly a picture I took in St. Thomas, and it makes me feel good, so I put it on the screen. <laughs> and I know you'd rather be there than, they, than, than, than to be sitting here, probably, listening to us on research on, on what works. But the reason why we are here is because of that. That little individual right there, that young lady who allowed that bu uh, butterfly to land on her head is so innocent. She believes what her daddy says. And her daddy's told her time and time again, I'm not going to come back this time. I'm sorry, I'm not coming back. There may be some ladies in here, some little ladies in here, some little men in here whose dads told them that. And you still believe that, that, that they're going to get it right. And so it's our job all of our jobs, whether we work in a facility, whether we work at Miss Corps, an office of reentry, whether we work as volunteers, is to try to make that right for our community. And so I want to thank you for, for allowing us to share and serve uh, this community. And we need your help. We need to partner on this. Um, uh, we need to keep moving. We need to keep the foot on them. You know how you pass a person in the interstate and then somebody passes you and then gets over in front of you and slows down. We don't need to do that. That irritates me to no end. We need to keep that pedal going. Once you pass, let's keep going. Let's keep going on down the road. Thank you. Thank you. When we got any questions, I know we're running tight. If anybody has a burning question or anything, we can try to answer it. Uh, we're running a little tight here. We want to stay on schedule. I got one. Yes, sir. I also, uh, I also work with returning veterans. Has any of this type of thing ever been discuss with them. Bingo. So you got to have great staff. Great staff. He does a huge job with veterans. We work with the Make veterans. it quick for him. Yeah. We work with the veterans. Um, we bring them onto the compound every quarter. Every, that's about four times a year. And on a monthly basis, we bring them to speak to a smaller number of individuals to assess what their needs are. And so while they're there, we know what they need. So when they leave, they already will have started that. How many do we have in the last one? 40? 44. Thank you. Great. Any other burning questions? We don't want to, we want to stay on schedule. Thank you so much. <laughs>